You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Let's turn to the book of Luke. Not Judges, Luke. We're in Luke today. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at this in verse 5 in a minute. So as you find your way to the New Testament, the book of Luke chapter 1 verse 5, we've got a picture from Kelsey from last week. Is she? Yeah, there's Kelsey. Okay. Uh, this was drawn. There's two of them. One, two sides here. One was, I love God. And there's the cross, right? First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So thanks for drawing that out. And then the other one, I wrote down notes from what she told me last week. This was Daniel and the lion in the Daniel and the lion's den. Maybe last week we were talking about Samson the lion. Maybe that brought to mind or Sunday school class. But here is Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel was faithful to God to pray, got thrown in the lion's den, and was saved there. And God was over that. So thanks, Kelsey, for drawing that. Other pictures are in the front. And welcome your pictures, kids or adults. They're welcome as well to uh, draw and turn in. So, all right. Well, hopefully by now you're at Luke chapter 1. And let's read, we're going to read a partial of this here. We're going to read 5 through 17 today, and then we'll look at the remainder in in, uh, weeks to come. So let's read God's Word this morning from Luke, starting verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's pray once again. Lord, again, we just pray and commit this time in your word to you. Would you use the words that I would speak to try to seek to understand this passage of your very word? May you use this passage in all of our lives, Lord, to lead us to you, to prepare our hearts to worship you, that we would proclaim you as Jesus, Son of God, worthy of all our worship, holy and mighty, And that we would praise you now and look forward to praising you for eternity because of your purchase of us from darkness to light through the cross. Lord, we thank you for your gift of salvation. 
May any here today that don't know you as we look through even this passage would be drawn towards you and draw us all, Lord, towards you to worship you more. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at Luke here, chapter 1, the accounts of John the Baptist's his birth. These accounts, they're, they're in, intermingled among this, the story of Christmas that we would normally think of, of Mary and so forth and the angel Gabriel. So the question is, why is it among this angel Gabriel visiting Mary and among the, the announcement of Jesus here to her, we've got these, uh, this other account of this. We've got a barren woman and a priest named Zechariah. We've got the, the birth of their son, John. He even talks about his birth, a section, and then a lengthy song of Zechariah. So, so what's this, what is this doing here? And even, even in the midst of our, what we might think of the normal Christmas narrative here. My aim here over the next few weeks as we, as we are in the Advent season is to lead us where, where the text does, Lord willing, and where the ministry of John the Baptist leads us. His ministry was preparation, to prepare. And I think that's fitting for us. His ministry to prepare the way of the Lord. Even in John the Baptist, even in his birth, there's a a linking back to the Old Testament in order to go forward to the, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see these accounts, and I think to see in them a way of God preparing a people for the Lord. Even in the intermingling of John's birth and this account and then the, the birth of Messiah, of Jesus, the Savior. And so may we here, even in this Christmas season and as we, as we await that Christmas season, but also the Lord's return, may we prepare our hearts as well. And hopefully as we go through this, that's part of it. So let's come back to our text into verse 5 and look again and just look through this section of these folks here. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Luke begins, he's, he's, he's writing to this Theophilist. He's writing an orderly account, and he begins with history here. The ruler here is Herod, king of Judea. This particular Herod known as Herod the Great even though I saw one resource said, great only in comparison to the rest of his family. Not so great, but great. Uh, one guy, Robert Stagg, calls him one of the cruelest rulers of all history. He was paranoid about his rule. He killed his sons, killed his wife. You remember the infants in Bethlehem? He wanted the rule. But, but he was also a builder. I've got a picture of the temple that we can put up. This is one of the things that Herod built in his time, and that is the temple. And Caleb, we can just leave that up there. You, we'll, we'll work from it here. But that's one of the buildings here was this restoration of the temple here, part of Herod's building plan, amongst other places. And, <clears throat> and it's here in this temple. That's where really this account is rooted. That's where we're at. Kind of on these steps, or rather inside here, this most holy place. Well, verse 5, we also meet, so we meet Herod, and then we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, the priest, his wife, also the line of Aaron, Elizabeth, and he's of this division of Abijah. Now, this is, if you've been in the two-year 
<coughs> excuse me, two-year Bible plan. Not long ago, I looked up the date, November 28th. If you are reading, you already read about the division of Abijah all the way back. Um, I didn't write down, I think it was in First Chronicles. Uh, it could have been Second, but I think one of those um, where, where we see this. One writer, Leon Morris, he gives us a bit of history here. He says there were many priests, many you know, from, from the, the lineage of that, of Aaron, but only one uh, temple. So they served on a roster. The priests were divided into 24 divisions, of which that of Abijah was the eighth. And then he says this, each division was on duty twice a year for a week on each occasion. So twice a year, so two weeks out of the year, here's Zechariah, he's on duty. His division is on call at the temple. And we're going to see more of that as we go. But verses 6 and 7, let's look at those because those take us a little closer into the lives of these two. Verse 6, and they were both, who, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But, verse 7 says, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Here Luke kind of sets up two, two seemingly contradictory, they seem like contradictory facts maybe to those that were living at the time. How can it be there these... This couple is righteous and blameless, and yet at the same time, they're barren and childless. So we might ask, doesn't righteousness and blamelessness, doesn't that always equal God's blessing? Why are they barren if they're righteous and blameless? Well, are they blessed? Yes. Is, Is blessing a life free from suffering? No. Which this tells us, even this little section, this tells us something about suffering. It's not always due to sin. Perhaps it can be sometimes, but not always, not here. They were, they were blameless and yet barren. They were childless. And in a society, this is a sign of being cursed by God, not being blessed. And there's also, I mean, who's going to, there's not nursing homes. So who's going to take care of them in their old age here? I'm going to reference a writer. I've talked to him bef- uh, of him before. He's a Christian and um, of, of the past, maybe 1800s, Alfred Edersheim. He writes and he gives a little human perspective here on this barrenness and old age of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He says, Elizabeth was childless. For many a year, this must have been the burden of Zacharias's prayer. The burden also of reproach, which Elizabeth seemed always to carry with her. They had waited together these many years and I love the way he says, till in the evening of life, the flower of hope had closed its fragrant cup. And still the two sat together in the twilight, content to wait in loneliness till night would close around them. Now there's one other note here as we see this particular fact of Elizabeth's her barrenness. Have there been any other, can you think of any other notable instances in Scripture of barrenness? Let me review. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Manoah's wife who bore Samson. She's not named, but we looked at that in Judges. Elkanah's wife, Hannah, who bore Samuel. God, in these things, God is about to do 
something. And if the Old Testament is any indication, it's going to be a major something. So you see that she was bare, and, and you look in, the, in the, the history of the Old Testament, something's going on. Uh, one resource says this, the barrenness of Sarah, or Sarai, Rebecca, and Rachel, the mothers of the Israelite nation, is significant in that their ability finally to bear children is a sign of the grace and favor of God towards His elect people. And I, I would say that's also going on here. There's a sign. There's a barren one with child, a sign of God's grace and favor. With that in mind, let's move on then into verses 8 through 10, and I'll just read them as a whole. Now we come to, to this temple more so. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So here's Zechariah somehow chosen by lot to go into the temple and burn incense. Was he somehow chosen? Was this just a luck of the draw? We go, no, no. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is ordaining all taking place here. From, from this division, this particular division of Abijah is on duty. This particular priest the Lot's chosen. This particular one whose wife is barren. All of this. And he's, his task is to go burn the incense. Now, speaking of incense here, we're maybe not as familiar with all these things. Maybe you're like me. Not just, we, don't, we don't use this every day. We don't think about it. Exodus 30 kind of lays out the task of this burning of the incense. You can see it. It's pretty small for you, but you know, a golden, the altar of incense where the incense was burned. You can... You can see the little priest like way... Oh, I don't, hey, here we go. Uh, he's right there. You see that? You put on your binoculars. He's right, right in there. The burning of the incense here in the most holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the most holy place. Every morning, every evening. This wasn't just a once a year thing. This was often. Now, in Psalm 141, verse 2, David relates it to prayer. He says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's Psalm 141. Again, Edersheim, who is Christian of Jewish you know, background that helps us correlate and understand these things, he helps us with the correlation of, of incense and prayer. I want to put those two together here just as David did in Psalm 141. He says this, The sacrifices... Now, because there's, before the incense, there's sacrifices going on here, morning and evening sacrifice. He says, the sacrifices were in no sense prayers, but rather the preparation for prayer. I want you to just hold on to that. The sacrifices were not the prayer, but they were preparation for prayer. The tabernacle was, as its Hebrew designation shows, the place of meeting between God and Israel. The sacrificial service, that, that which made such meeting possible, and the priest, as the root of the word implies, he who brought Israel near to God. And then he says this, Hence prayer could only follow after the sacrifice, and its appropriate symbol and time was the burning of incense. You see the, 
the chronology and the sacrifice, the offering, the priest, and then the prayer, the burning of the incense, and prayer connected to this, the sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, as to the actual, what actually happened, and, and in this there is more going on here than simply uh, Zechariah walking up to the temple. Uh, there's the incense, okay, he walks in and let's light that on fire, burn it, and head home for the day. D- duty is done. There's way, there's way more to this. And, and I would, if this, if this interests you, and I think it's interesting just to read more about it, Edersheim writes, you can find this free online uh, under the, his book called The Temple, and there's a section, that, a whole section on just uh, burning the incense. And he talks about this, and you can learn more. It's fascinating. There's lots to it. The, the, the cast, uh, Zechariah, his lot was the third lot of the day. He wasn't even the first lot. There was other lots for, for um, I think, preparing the sacrifice, uh, preparing the altar of incense, and, and this sort of thing. So there's just lots going on. But I think what he helpfully points out is just the connection for us. Incense connected to prayer, which we're going to see in our text. We've already seen it. One commentary then just summarizes kind of this, this with Zechariah. The incense for which Zechariah was responsible symbolized what? I mean, what's the symbol? He says, they say symbolized the prayers of the entire nation. At that particular moment, I think they're referring to the burning of the incense, Zechariah was thus the focal point of the entire Jewish nation. Imagine that. Here's the priest, the altar. Here's the prayers. Edersheim lists out some prayers that perhaps were traditional prayers at this time. And you you see it. There's people outside praying, and I think Zechariah is inside as well. Well, okay, all this background prepares us now. We're in that temple by that little red dot that I showed you. Prepares us for verse 11. According to God's perfect plan, here's a righteous, blameless man who has no child, who is praying at this very hour, along with those outside, and come to verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The last prophet had been Malachi. And then silence. That was some 400 years ago. And now there's this. Suddenly the silence of 400 years is broken in the presence of an angel of the Lord. So, for Zechariah, this was not just another day at the office. This, this, this did not happen, this angel appearing and visiting. And understandably, verse 12, we read on, talks about Zechariah's fear, and fear comes over him as the angel appears. He's troubled at the sight. I mean, this temple, this is a, this is, it's to be feared. This is the, the presence of God here in Jerusalem. It's a fearful place to be. And now you've got an angel right before you. What will be the interaction? But just as this same angel, whose name is Gabriel, we'll find out later, he says, remember he says to Mary, do not be afraid. He also says that to Zechariah. Look at verses 13 then, just getting into 14. Let's continue. But the angel said to him, think of these very first words, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. I'm just going to stop right there. 
Here are words of hope to this couple. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife shall bear a son. And the son's name is, and here's our character, John, who, which means the Lord is gracious. Now note, this, this is not to make a promise here. As we look at this in this prayer of Zechariah, just to make a note here that everyone barren of children, if you just pray long enough, you too, like Zechariah, will, will have a child But we can say, at least here, the answer is according to God's perfect timing and according to His perfect will, known only to God. But at this moment, this barren couple will have a child named John, and God is gracious to them, but His grace, I don't think, is limited to this couple. I think there's there's good reason to believe Zechariah's prayer here is a little more far-reaching. Now, hang with me. What, the question, was this only a prayer for a son? Here's, again, I'm coming back to the commentator, Leon Morris. He makes this observation on the prayer of Zechariah. Imagine, here we are, Zechariah, altar of incense, the incense going up, he's praying, and we're asking, what, what's he praying there? The text, the, there's no way to know exactly. The text, I mean, we see it makes it seem, and, and I think rightly, perhaps he's praying for a son, but, but Leon Morris says this. He says, our, our first thought is that he had prayed for a child. But, Morris proposes, a priest might well have thought it unseemly to make his private concern the object of prayer at such a moment. This, this was a one-time event for Zechariah. He goes on to say, it's more likely that he prayed for the redemption of Israel. Now, he was told that this prayer would be granted, but that was not all. In addition, he would have a son. So you look at the text, your prayer has been heard, and you could say, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Like, your prayer, if it's for the redemption of Israel, that's been heard. And by the way, also receive a son. It's, I know it's not written, he's looking into this. But I think if we think of the priest as representing all of Israel before this prayer, it is hard to think that he would just simply be praying just for a child, that there's more to it. Perhaps he was praying. I mean, He's old in age, and I, I think Morris here is kind of doubting. Would he still be praying? Maybe he said, you know, that, that has passed. I used to pray about that, but I got, you know, here I am now. You can sort that through. But I think there's an implication here. Maybe he was praying for a child, but I think also praying for the children of Israel. Again, we don't know all of what he was praying. Was he praying for the healing, for blessing on them? Perhaps here's a righteous and blameless Man in, in, in what you might maybe make a connection of barrenness in a barren people that have turned away from God and praying that they would turn back to their God. And so God answers, your prayer has been heard. And as we said, by the way, a son named John. Well, let's look at, look at the second part of verse 14 and onward as I'm going to just propose. It's, again, answering Zechariah's prayer. God was on the move. He was raising up one who would tie in, connect, bring the Old Testament into the new. So look at, look at verse 14 uh, again through 15. The angel says to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, many are going to rejoice at his birth. We see this fulfilled. Luke 1.58 They rejoice that he's born. Maybe beyond that, but we can at least see that. He's going to be great. 
This child will be great. Jesus Himself says so. John, He's great. You know what Jesus also says? Luke 7, 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than He. This is what we have. We have we're, there's a connection in John for us. He, he's great before the Lord. And yet Jesus, in the very same book, says, no, yeah, but the least in the kingdom is greater even than He. And then this child, and here hopefully our judge... Our, Judge's ears tune in. He's, he's not to have uh, drink wine or strong drink. And, and we go, we know, we've seen this before. We saw this in Samson and his parents and this same order from Manoah and his wife. So this John as well, he's to be set apart. And verse 15 tells us he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. I think here, John, he's, he, he would not minister. He would not prepare a people in the power of John. He would prepare them in the power of God's Holy Spirit to guide him. Now look at the last verses of at least our section for today, 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You hear the word twice here in what I read. He will turn many, and then you see it, to turn the hearts, fathers to the children, disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This turning, it's not just a turning for the sake of turning. It's turning with an object in mind. And that's what verse 16 says. Answers. What's the object? What's the turning? Where are they going to turn to? And that's verse 16, that they would turn back to the Lord their God. John's ministry is preparing a people to turn to the Lord their God. Now, I want to just take a minute because there's, I've mentioned a couple times, there's Old Testament and there's workings through here. Just go, go to a couple places, tracing back this idea of the spirit and power of Elijah, tracing it back through Elijah in the Malachi and then back here. So just a brief excursion here, but turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's start there. 1 Kings 18, 36 in particular. We've talked about connections to Samson. I think there's connections to Samuel and I think there's connections, obviously, from the text itself to Elijah, and then we'll see Malachi, but here, 1 Kings 18, and we're back in the account of Elijah. He's been sent as a prophet to Israel. Here we're, at, we're in Mount Carmel in the north. He's challenging the people of Israel. Verse 21, he's saying to them, how long, people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions that the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. What are you, you guys are limping. What are you going to do? And he shows up, and you remember, it's a familiar story to many of you, with the 450, the prophets of Baal, setting up their sacrifice to prove their God. Nothing happens. And Elijah sets up his sacrifice. And here's the prayer. I want you just to hear the prayer at verse 36, and I'll read through for, uh, 39. We've got to hear the outcome of it. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. It's 
like, O Lord God of the fathers. This might be helpful later on. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then we'll finish. I mean, then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The word for turned here, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the same word for turning that we have come up to in our, in our Luke 1, 16 and 17. It's the same word for turning. Just as Elijah's ministry was one of calling the people back to know their God, so it would be John's ministry. Well, let's fast forward on our way back towards Luke, then stop in Malachi. So now head to the book of Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament. And I think there's more than this place, but at least Malachi 4. I'm going to read the chapter to you. Don't worry, it's not very long. It's six verses long. And then let's connect this back into John. So Malachi 4, here's Malachi prophesying to Israel about their own waywardness in the day. But this chapter 4 looks, looks forward. Let's read it. Uh, to get, let's read this. I'll start in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel that Milt read from even this morning. Then verse 5, here it is, coming into Luke. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The angel of the Lord in Luke 1 essentially repeats verses 5 and and 6 to Zechariah here of what we saw in Malachi. And the question is, and was for me, what does this mean? What's this turning fathers to children, turning the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers? What's what's the meaning of this? Or, Or in Luke 117, we've got the words, I think, connected, turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I think there's two possibilities, and maybe we'll just put them at the same time. I think there's two. One possibility, th- this, this meaning of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and so forth, it, it refers to real parents and, and real fathers and real children. And, and unlike, again, a connection to Samuel's day where Eli was the priest, and Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were evil sons, and Eli did not deal with them. He did not 
move towards them. They were kind of on their own in wickedness. And so here, perhaps, we see real fathers turning towards their children. Leanne Morris would say, performing their parental responsibilities. Or that disobedient sons would change their way of life. That fathers would be turned to care for their children and calling them to the Lord. and Children would hear and obey. Fathers would, would really call children to the Lord. It's a connection, a generational connection. But I think there, there's also here, and in, in a greater way, so there's always kind of the, there's the what's, what's the greater, I think, symbol here we might say? I think there's an allusion to Israel's spiritual fathers. We read of Abraham, Isaac, I can't remember what was in uh, Elijah's prayer, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the fathers of Israel. John Calvin comments and he says this. He says, We know how dreadful was the revolt of the people in the time of Elijah, how basely they had degenerated from the fathers, so as hardly to deserve to be reckoned the children of Abraham. You see the father-children connection here? He goes on. He says, Those who were thus disunited, Elijah brought into holy harmony. Such was the reunion of parents with children, which was begun by John and at length finished by Christ. All right, let's think about that. Just You can head back. We're not very far away from Luke now. Head back to Luke 1.17. Back to our text. Begun by John, a reunion of parents, fathers to children, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Zechariah's prayer would be answered. He was this one of old age. He was married to a barren wife. And here they're going to have a son named John. God's gracious. And at the end of verse 17, then, we, we find John's mission. You can see it right there at the end, the last clause, basically. What's all this to do? What's he to do? He's to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How are they prepared? They're prepared by turning back to the Lord their God. Now, next week we're going to move on. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25, and I think we're even going to go further. We'll, we'll just kind of skim again Mary visiting Elizabeth and then even the actual birth of John the Baptist just to, to move through this narrative. But for now, in closing, I want to I come back and just think about what's the heart of this passage. And we know it, at, at length here, there's... There, this is what John's going to do. And then we'll read further, hopefully, in the weeks to come. Here's John doing this mission, turning hearts, calling to repentance, that idea. But right here, we've got to work in what's Zechariah and Elizabeth and the barrenness and, and the prayer. And, and I just think this, this burning of incense here, which I think the heart of this passage then is that Zechariah's prayer was heard. The angel says, do not be afraid your prayer has been heard. They'd have a son, yes, and that many of Israel would be turned to the Lord. So let me just close with just a couple thoughts as we think about prayer as a way of preparing and the preparation of prayer. One is uh, simply this, the command, pray. Uh, Proverbs 15.29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. And James 5.16 says it similarly. 
says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then James speaks of the praying of, guess who? Elijah. The power of the prayer of a righteous person has great power as is working. I want to just first just try to just encourage you in this season of preparing to turn our hearts to the Lord to prepare by prayer, to pray. And we might say, well, okay, but I'm not righteous like Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous. They were blameless. I'm not righteous like Elijah. I just propose, though, are you not, if you're in Christ, declared righteous, justified by the blood of Christ? Zechariah only offered up the prayer, again, sacrifice to prayer. Is there a sacrifice that speaks on our behalf? Christ's, that we can now pray and lift up our prayers to the Lord. The sacrifice led to prayer and worship. And so because of Jesus' sacrifice, if you put your trust in Him, we too, we've been imputed with His righteousness and so we might pray. We've been united with the Father. We can pray. We can seek Him with our heart. You can seek Him for your family. You can seek Him for a people in darkness. Which is my second point, just thinking of prayer and thinking of Zechariah's prayer and maybe his prayer for the redemption of Israel, but maybe broadening in the application do you? Do you observe a crazy world? I mean, how many times a week are you, are you thinking to yourself, it's, it sure seems, it's just crazy. Or you look around, wrong is right. We've talked about that through Judges. Wrong is celebrated. There's a prevailing blindness. There's a hardness towards God. And let me just encourage us to not neglect the Lord's command to pray. That's what's going on here. The prayer of incense. We have access now. May we pray. It might not be, very likely, not the only thing we we do. But let it be a foundation to what we do. Let us start there. And if you find yourself frustrated and distraught and angry at what's going on all around you, can I just invite you to begin to pray and then just to put a plug in. Come join us on a Wednesday night and pray here together. Uh I wanted to say, I put it in my notes, it's nothing flashy. Actually, uh, it's not, I mean, there's no, there's no smoke. We, 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 we sing a hymn, we read a psalm, we pray. You think, well, that's not flat. Well, where are we coming to? Where are you in your home when you pray? What is going on? You're accessing the gates of heaven to talk to the Lord of the universe when you pray. That's flashy. It's always flashy, whether you're on your own or you join us. But I just want to encourage you to do this. I don't want to come across that, you know, this is, a, you know, get your spirituality up a mark and come to prayer meeting or just give you a lot of guilt. But if I can nudge you, I want to nudge as an under-shepherd of the shepherd. To, let's pray together. If, we, if we're all going, the world is falling apart, let's pray together. Join us. And I realize some, it's not going to work for you uh, with your schedule, those sorts of things. Many are busy. Just would plug for that. No matter where you're at, just pray. encourage you to do this, to pray for God's timing, for His will to be done. Zechariah here prayed a long time, and eventually that prayer was answered. And may we join together and watch God, trust Him for His will to be done, now or in the future. Um, and then lastly, just 
as, as it relates to Christmas here and, and this season, is to pray by way of preparation. To just encourage you on your own to pray to the Lord during this season. Just pray. It's very simple. We enter, we're in December, we're in the celebration of all things Christmas. Uh, to just prepare by prayer. To prepare to turn to God by prayer. To pray, Lord, in this season, would you, would you help my heart to focus on the right things and, and to love you, Jesus, more and more as this month goes along. And I don't think we have to not enjoy candle lights and, and beautiful trees and we don't have to kind of slap ourselves, but, but say, Lord, through all these things, would you just drive home to me the greater view of the one whom John came to proclaim. John would say, I must decrease, Christ may increase. May that be the story. Not that we would just come away with how great John is, but the one John was preparing the people to see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. May we not, may you and I not discount the power of prayer to prepare the way of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, what a gift it is to right now, because of the shed blood of Christ, pray to you. This is grace and a gift. And Lord, we must say, forgive us for we have squandered the time. Lord, may we be a praying people, whether it's together here on a Sunday morning or in in twos in some hallway where the needs are heavy or we're together on a Wednesday night or we're alone in a closet, in a prayer closet in a home or we're driving a tractor or we're heading to work. Lord, I pray we would access this grace bought by the blood of Christ. Lord, would you prepare each of our hearts during this particular Christmas season to look forward to this time as a way of growing in our relationship with you. And then, Lord, to look forward prayerfully, trusting that your second advent, your second coming is imminent. None of us know the day. And may we be prepared by prayer for that day when you will will show yourself and you will reign mightily and put an end to all wickedness. We do pray this because of Jesus. In his name we pray. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.